This is Bonjour Hi, the Jew Don't Belong edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi and special guest hosts Lex Rothberg and Arno Rosenfeld. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, marketing the Jewish people in advance of a prominent ad on the Super Bowl from the Foundation to Combat Antisemitism and a host of other efforts, we ask, who is this marketing for and is it actually going to do any good? All this and more right after we hear from our sponsor. Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work, but they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety Screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut, pried, or bashed in, so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind. And protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass, an absolutely unbreakable clear covering. Call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation. That's M-E-T-A-L-E-X security.com. Remember, prevention is always better than the cure. Lex Rofberg, amongst uh, many other things, is the host of Judaism Unbound uh, and an educator with the An Yeshiva, a digital center for Jewish learning and unlearning. Lex, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thanks for having me. And Arno Rosenfeld is a journalist at The Forward, where he focuses much of his efforts on reporting about anti-Semitism. Arno, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thanks. Excited to be here. You, uh, Arno, you actually have a uh, Canadian connection I do. Yeah, I, uh, a couple Canadian connections. Um, so I grew up on the West Coast uh, in San Francisco, but I went to college at the University of British Columbia. Uh, so I was up in Canada for a few years for school where I uh, did some freelancing for the Jewish Independent in Vancouver and also was a stringer for JTA. So I covered sort of Western Canadian news uh, for a couple of years. And I remember I wrote a, a piece for the Times of Israel about a Canadian potash company that I think was trying to do some mining in the Dead Sea. So I had uh, a little bit of time in, in Canadian Jewish journalism. Uh, and then my sister actually went to school. At, she's a few years younger than me, went to school at McGill uh, and is now living in Victoria. So I've uh, spent a good amount of time in, in Canada. I think you have more Canadian Jewish cred than I do. <laughs> you, I, I can't say I've, I've ever spent that much consecutive time in in Canada, I will say I um, I've been to Canada a bunch of times the past few years, and it's been very fun. And for a variety of mostly Jewish purposes, I was in um, Winnipeg for a Limud event. I was in Calgary for a, a youth group event. I was in Toronto for a Limud. Um, I was in Montreal just with my wife because she had a conference there, and I decided to work from there for the week because Montreal is cool. Um, it really is. Yeah, I've enjoyed all my time in Canada. <laughs> So I've, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other... We're doing a job marketing Canada, I think, on this podcast. Yeah. That's tr- oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. I see what you did there, marketing Canada, marketing Judaism. In our pre-show meetings, we actually had discussions about like what marketing actually means, right? Is it different from branding and who the audience is for any sort of marketing or any sort of branding or anything like that um, in advance of like the topic that we're going to cover. And I imagine we're going to touch on a lot of this in our discussion. Um, but to frame this and to get the ball rolling, let's start with the Jewish organizations and their internal rebranding efforts. Um, recently, the reform movement did one of these. Uh, you covered it, Arno. Can you tell us what yeah, happened? Yeah. So full disclosure, I actually worked at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism for a little over a year when I first got to DC. And I used to put the disclosure in all the stories, but now I've worked at the forward much longer than I ever worked for the rack. Uh, but it, you know, I closely follow, uh, their, their stuff and I worked in communications for them. And so when I saw, I started getting these emails that had a new logo and I was like, did they change their logo? And I sent them a message and they were like, Oh yeah, we changed it. I mean, you know, are you going to send out a press release? And they said, no, we, we aren't going to send anything out, but you know, we're, we're doing this little refresh. And so I was like, well, I want to write this up. I know lots of people are, are very passionate about, um, a lot of reformed Jews are very, feel very connected to the movement. So I thought people would be interested in it. Um, and yeah, they basically did their first big, uh, re- they got new logos. So their first big rebrand in 15 to 20 years. It depends a little bit on how you count it. Their previous logo dated back to when they were the Union of American Hebrew uh, Congregations. They changed their name to the Union for Reform Judaism, but they kept the sort of menorah style logo. And then the Religious Action Center had used 
going back as far as I could find, which was to their first website in the 90s, uh, the high, the Hebrew letters for high, along with sort of a blue color scheme, and they got rid of the high. So in, in both cases, they sort of got rid of the menorah, they got rid of the high. Of course, you know, you could read that as removing Jewish iconography. As someone who worked at the Religious Action Center and had no idea why we had the high as part of the logo, and I think everyone in the communications department was like, sort of a weird relic. It doesn't really make sense. Um, you know, I, I don't want to go too far in that direction, but they they streamlined their logos uh, into these kind of interlocking letters. It's a little bit of a 1970s vibe, which we've seen with some other Jewish organizations in recent years. Uh, and then they accompanied those with a, a set of these sort of abstract uh symbols that they're going to pair with. So now I've started to get fundraising emails where they're pairing some of these symbols with the new logos. Um, and yeah, it was it was launched, I guess, at the beginning of this year as part of their, they had just celebrated their 150th anniversary. So it was part of a, a refresh related to that, uh, that anniversary, I think. Lex, when organizations do this, um, and not just organizations, movements, right? We look at um, the Reconstructionist movement, which has rebranded itself as Reconstructing Judaism. Um, is this is this a good thing for the Jews? Is this a desperate move to remain relevant? Is it needed? Um, I, 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 look, I'm the first one to say that a brand refresh is always important um, to, to stay visually relevant. Um, but does it, does it, what's going on in the larger conversation when internal organizations need to rebrand like this? Yeah. Um, well, the last piece is interesting, right? Like when inter when organizations need to rebrand like this, I I think sometimes they need to, and I think a lot of times they want to or choose to, and um, I'm I'm I don't have like super strong feelings about the good for the Jews question. I think that yeah, I mean we've at my own organization, Judaism Unbound, we've had we had one major rebrand at one point, um, nothing to the scale of what I think was operating with Union for Reform Judaism. But I, like, I'm interested in unpacking what's underneath a lot of these, because when I look at shifts to, let's take the reform movements, uh, iconography, imagery, like, it's not just that they're, that they're doing a rebrand. I think there's a set of trends that their rebrand sort of demonstrates. And Arno's article does a fabulous job of showing this with other organizations too. There's, I think for a, a number of decades, let's say the late, I was going to say the late 1900s. It's like a funny thing to talk about. Uh, the, yeah, like the 80s and 90s, um, I think many legacy institutions of Jewish life were characterized by logos and imagery that seemed to be going for an aesthetic of like authentic and ancient and there were menorahs and the colors were were not particularly bright and, and I, i'm not saying this critically like they were they were dark blues and they were they were sometimes browns they they were they were less like aggressive colors i, I don't mean aggressive negatively it's just like they they didn't seem to be trying to to catch your eye really effectively they wanted you to feel like oh this is a this is like a a manifestation of a religion of something that is time honored and they wanted to send that message through their images and then what we see now with a lot of these rebrands urj and others is a shift towards much brighter colors um also this is a subtle thing but i'm kind of obsessed with some of this stuff a shift from serif fonts to sans serif fonts like almost 100 percent. it's like wild how completely it, it like it is hard to find serif fonts in jewish life anymore but like there's an there's well that's true across the, the board things that are operating there right yeah but that but that's what i'm getting at like it i, I want to ask sort of are the are, are the questions that jewish organizations asking like how do we best serve our people and get our get our name out to the world like i think that's what they're trying to do but i think what often happens is an effort that sort of replicates broader shifts in corporate marketing and and so like that might or might not be good i don't know like it's not to say that that's inherently yeah. evil it's like I, or inherently you, great you may not have heard about this piece but they, uh, recently the toronto jcc did a rebrand and they came under some fire because um the magen david was all but eliminated except for like hinting at it within the logo and one of the things that i notice is that for 
in, internal facing organizations, meaning organizations that are primarily Jewish facing, um, the need to put in the religious iconography is not always needed or present because if you know URJ and you're going to get used to this logo of what it looks like, you don't necessarily need to be like, hit over the head with a Mag and David or a menorah or anything like that. And they're basically saying to within their organization, right? And I think what they have done, URJ, is actually pretty good. They're basically saying, look, we need to stay relevant visually, at the very least. Otherwise, we are going to be seen as your Bubby's Reform Judaism um, or the JCC in Toronto, the same sort of thing. You know, that's that's fine with me. It's when organizations are needing to like, you know, I, I had a harder time, for example, with reconstructing Judaism, right? To sort of say like, we don't believe in this word reconstructionist anymore. It's not as relevant to us. And we want to be able to, uh, uh, like, you know, say that we have new things to say about um, Judaism um, that our previous branding um, wasn't saying, our brand story. And I think that that was, uh, that, that's, you know, different. I don't know if that's I think it's that just a funny well. word. Yeah. I think they went from one word that people didn't know. Yeah, well, they went no both of them. I think they went from one word that that they were hearing from their people, like folks in our communities, they don't know what reconstructionist means, like, and so their thought was, oh, reconstructing—that's a word people actually use, like constructing, reconstructing. Like, that's like more straightforward. But when applied to Judaism, it's equally unclear to a lot of people what that means. I actually like if I lived in a perfect world where we could all have like unlimited amount of time to explain branding to people i kind of like reconstructing judaism as like like i don't know i think of like hard hats and like we're out there and we're like doing the project of creating a new i i like that but i do think that it's not very effective at conveying anything about what kind of judaism that, the the, that project the, the, you is you miss branding opportunity um in when you call the on yeshiva is is a, make it a, pro a project of deconstructing judaism and that well, could have been your brand. That, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, we could talk about the choices we made with the Anishiva. I mean, um, we've gotten we've gotten pretty good feedback on it because um, we we blended English and Hebrew, which was very intentional. We took a word that not everybody knows, but but many of our audience know in yeshiva, and so we send the message simultaneously that like we're a Jewish learning thing, but also like hashtag not like other Jewish learning things. Um, and that seems to be working for us. Um, but but going back to the reconstructing thing, like I I actually do like that sort of we look at their their color choices and other elements of their change. They went to sort of a I don't know. It feels kind of Hamish in Arno's article. It's like this little green grassy, almost sort of lulav looking uh, imagery. And I think what we've seen in the past few decades is it used to be this sense that like to be a Jewish organization was to be blue and white pretty much um there were occasional exceptions to this but almost all legacy institutions used that color palette and there were sort of were jewish colors and now we're seeing a lot of organizations including the urj although they they still went with predominant blue in their new version saying implicitly like to be Jewish is not to hew to a certain color palette. You can manifest Judaism in all these different ways. Can I ask a and question about the colors specifically? Yeah. Is this does it relate to a shift away from Israel as a central oh, yeah. identity? Is that I th yeah? I think that's a. I think it relates to a a marketing choice. I don't think it relates to a choice in the actual content of what these organizations do. I, I'm. I wish as somebody who wishes that Israel. Um, played a different role in these organizations work in almost every way. I don't know that I see sort of content changes about shifting away from Israel. I do think that they are aware that if their goal is to reach people outside of their orbit, Jews and their loved ones, um, it is not useful to them to you to make branding choices that feel Israel-ish. And is, I think that's part of what comes up with mm -hmm. the Star of David. Well, another like, question I had about Toronto. that is that there's yeah. also, so it's the idea of reaching Jews with different views about Israel, different levels of interest in Israel, but also there's the question of non-Jews who may or may not want to enter a building with a great big blue and white sort of Israeli flag motif logo. For, for what it's worth, a lot reasons. of Jews don't want to. I, I don't mean, know. I, I, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. So the Jews... Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, I think there were organizations, like the conservative movement in the U.S. seemed to have basically like a dark red color scheme before this. So I also thought that it was almost... You know, I mean, Reconstructionist movement seemed to be using a purple. 
color scheme, at least for their rabbinical college. So it wasn't universal. I mean, the Orthodox Union basically used to just have the Heksher was their logo, the black and white Heksher, and then they updated to a blue and white uh, logo. But I think it's interesting, Phoebe, what you said about who they're marketing to, um, because to bring it back to what Lex was saying sort of at the start about uh, trying to, you know, the old names used to be these very established uh, titles that, you know, suggested a lot of authority. And now it seems like their Jewish organizations are playing on the same playing field as other organizations because they realize that, like, you know, 50 years ago, you had a built-in audience. It's like you were a reformed Jew. You didn't really care what the UAHC was called or what their logo was. Now you might nominally be a reformed Jew, but you're also, you know, your Saturdays are kind of up for grabs. And so a bunch of people are making draws on that. And you don't want to necessarily come across as the staid old, you know, synagogue arm of the reform movement. You want to be more dynamic. And I think we see this with uh, names as well, because, you know, if you look at the Religious Action Center, which is one of, you know, four or five mainstream but very progressive Jewish organizations. And what's its official title? The Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, which is not something you would ever name a Jewish social justice group today. The Religious Action, like, what does that mean of Reform Judaism? It's a very long title, but it was from an era when who were the who were their peer organizations in the 50s and 60s when they first came about? It was the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. It was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith. And now, you know, the new organizations that they work with, Bend the Ark, Trua, uh, you know, NCJW, National Council of Jewish Women, is still one of those throwback uh, organization names. But I think they realize that they're trying to compete with you know, everything you're seeing on social media, everything you're seeing on your local events calendar. And and so I think that uh, relates to how they've moved away from some of that branding that was making an appeal to authority. Now they really need to convince you in a very crowded uh, sort of landscape that they are dynamic and interesting and where you should be putting your energy and, and also obviously money. Mm-hmm. They also want really short URLs and not really long URLs and Twitter handles and Instagram handles. Like, I, like it's amazing how much that stuff matters um, to these choices. Yeah, but the, like, the, yeah, the I menorahs mean, I, mattered before and now it's the URLs and uh, the, yeah. the, the handles that you get. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just went to the, the Conference of Presidents of... I, I, I was thinking, like, where could I see the most logos at one time? And I went to the Conference of Presidents website... Um, and they have like a list of all their member organizations. And it's really interesting to see all of them alongside each other. The The color scheme continues to be very dark blue centric on well, their page. To be fair, by the way, um, and that's one thing, there's, yeah. there's been articles about this, about how the color of the internet is blue. Blue is the color of the majority of logos on the internet, Jew- like even like put, not dealing with anything Jewish. And that blue is a safe color that people are choosing. Um, I, and we can get into the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about this. But if you think about the major um, organization, the major tech companies, many, many of them have blue as their color. And, and I was looking for better articles about how blue became associated with Hanukkah and with all these Jewish things. And I, I came up a little bit, not empty handed, but not getting as much as I, I hoped I might. Isn't it was interesting. Like from, the, from the Israeli flag? Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the consensus, but it's also like, where did the Israeli flag come from? Okay, oh, from the, the Talit, right, from the, the snail's blood, but like it's, exactly, yeah. but, yeah. and you know, and, and maybe it's just that we don't have enough, you know, color photographs from before the establishment of the state of Israel, but I'm like, well, what were people, you know, what color were, um, you know, the, you, the, can you imagine uh, the branding meeting sitting in, I feel like there's a whole movie to be made about the branding meeting for the state of Israel in 1947, 48, like, all these like hardcore Israelis sitting there fighting over like the discussion. Well, even like, the name no, of the country, right, yeah. was was that, an open that question. That is for... an actual discussion that has happened. Yeah, yeah. that we know about. Yeah, it. Um, but I think to a degree we don't talk about the green and red of Christmas. Also, plays an implicit role in Jews not using like sort of pine colored green thing. Like, like there's a there's a way in which we want to be deeply not that. Oh. In some of our, or in some I think of our, was realizing that the this. green and red yeah. means something else nowadays. Yes. Well, I was going to say that yeah. I think I don't. I'm sure I've brought this up on the podcast before, Which but is that once I saw somebody in my neighborhood in Toronto putting up a flyer that had um, red and green, and I thought, oh, I assume this is one of the many, many, many uh, pro-Palestinian flyers going up in the neighborhood. But in fact, it was for some sort of Christmas market, and mm. right. that surprised me because it's not often what these are now. But well, yeah, there, yeah. And there was that whole thing, I don't know if you followed, uh, the watermelon, right, has become this, well, it's long been this symbol of sort of 
Palestinian liberation. And I think it was the Democratic Socialists of America held this event outside Hakeem Jeffries' office, the House Minority Leader in New York, who's African-American. And they were like, oh, we're going to do like an art project. And they used a watermelon to illustrate it. And they thought it was very self-evidently Palestinian. And Jeffries' office said it's racist because of the association with uh, negative stereotypes about African-Americans and watermelons. And so it's all like you start getting a couple orders of degrees removed from the core thing and everyone has their own interpretation. Um, the, the quick thing I would just say, Lex, about the Conference of Presidents is talk about an organization that has not rebranded. I, I mean, you were just on their website, which is very difficult to use. Every time I have to write about them in an article, I'm like, oh, I can't call them the Conference of Presidents because nobody knows what that is. And also it doesn't say anything Jewish, but their full name, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations is the most un- unwieldy. I call it Kotmajo in my <laughs> head. It sounds like Kotmajo, Joe, that, that wonderful dance Every song. time I hear about this organization, I think like this is the, the stuff the Jewish conspiracy theories are made of. Avi, to ask a question to maybe like broaden this out, is marketing of a religion unique to Jews among the sort of established religions. So I don't I mean like newer religions. Such a good way. Um, Certainly not. I was not literally really. about to transition to this point. I'm sure like you can see like Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a an office near me in Toronto. They they clearly have like a, a logo. Well, the Lutherans are interesting. I grew up in Wisconsin where there's lots of Lutherans. Every every school in my sports conference in high school, except for my own, was Lutheran. Or there were like two non-Lutherans. Um, I don't think the Lutherans are doing much. I do think that a lot of Christian groups that try to brand themselves as sort of just Christian, which usually means like evangelical, are doing a lot of this. Um, we're recording this, you know, Super Bowl-ish time. We've got, um, we've got the Super Bowl in our midst. And like last year or maybe two years ago, I don't know when it was. Um, there were these, he gets us advertisements about Jesus, like Jesus gets and um and i watched it and i was sitting there with my friends and i was and i was mostly with people who were not jewish and we ended up talking about like for them i mean they're not like religious but they were just like that's kind of weird we're like advertising for jesus in a super bowl ad um i sat there and i'm like he gets us that's actually kind of menacing like gets in the sense of like grabs or takes like that's not what they mean it as but as somebody who is not part of the the cultural group being like advertised like not part of somebody who identifies as christian i was like he gets it it felt really like kind of menacing to me even that though that's not what they meant um but i've been seeing those ads i I watch a lot of sports on the sidelines of basketball courts there's like jesus ads very regularly now for with this i don't know the name of the project but this he gets us thing um and you know, I mean, we haven't talked about Jubilong yet, but like, oh, we want to, Jubilong, we will. yeah. We will. Let's, let's, but talk, let's, let's, about let's bracket that for a second. I want to get to the to the rest of the Super Bowl. I want to, I want to, I want to deal with the the past Super Bowls where there have been ads like like he gets us, and there have been ads about for Scientology. There have been ads for Latter Day Saints for 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 the Mormons, um, and last year and this year there have been ads from the Kraft Foundations, uh, the Foundation to Combat Antisemitism. Arno, you covered it last year, I believe the uh, the ad from last year, and I know that there's an ad coming up this year. And from what I understand, they apparently filmed multiples because they didn't know which one they were going to use and. And they switched at the last minute because the Canadian Jewish News leaked one of the uh, the stories and and killed the surprise. So now this, they got ahead of it and did another surprise. Um, can you fill us in on some of those? Um, and I want to ask that question of who is the Super Bowl ad for um, versus you know moving into other things. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So I came to the FCAS uh, advertisements after the Super Bowl when because I believe. Robert Kraft ran a few of these ads that were sort of just text on a black background, uh, very, very simplistic ads. And then last spring, I believe, uh, was when the, the more highly produced advertisements started coming out. So the ones that had actors and directors and, and all of that, March of last year, is when they started releasing these really highly produced ads that had these moving stories and sort of these vignettes of anti-Semitism. And it was part of a $25 million campaign, which came on top of millions of dollars that Robert Kraft had already spent on FCAS. But it was sort of the big public unveiling of this project that had been around for three or four years prior to that, but it kind of hadn't been doing anything. It was actually in the back of my notebook, like follow up with why Robert Kraft has not 
appeared to have spent any of the $25 million that he pledged to spend. And then they, you know, I get this press release saying they're running these national advertisements. And, you know, I think there was a consensus that the ads themselves seemed pretty good. Uh, the marketing folks that I spoke to in the Jewish community said that they were good ads, but they also said, uh, it's not totally clear who these ads are for. And we also have very little testing of whether these things work. And I think that partly this is a manifestation of trends in Jewish philanthropy that we've seen. And this is also true with the forward is also written about He Gets Us, which is the name of this Jesus campaign, which is also the project of primarily one very wealthy evangelical Christian philanthropist who wanted to do this. And so on some on some level, you know, if you're a nonprofit has to answer to a kind of board of directors that has to go out and get online grassroots donations, you really need to be giving them something compelling. If you're Robert Kraft and you decide you want to run really moving vignettes about anti-Semitism on national television, you, you don't have to have a clear audience in mind. You don't have to track metrics or whether it makes a difference. You can just do it. And so I think, you know, that's that's one thing here is like the questions that we're often used to asking kind of don't apply when it's just a wealthy guy's, you know, fun or cool or to him, I'm sure, important uh, idea. So that's something that came through a lot is like a lot of these are open questions. Who are these ads for? I don't know. What, what do all of you think? They're not for me. That's that's what I would say clearly. Um, so I am a I am a proud uh, showcase subscribe membership holder, which is our local uh, movie theater chain, where I get like free tickets every month. Or not free. I, I pay for them. They then feel free because I've paid for them before. Um, I get three. Like I see a lot of movies, and so I go to the movie theater regularly. And for a, a very long period of time, maybe six months. Whenever I went to the Showcase movie theater, which is in New England, I live in Providence, Rhode Island, so I'm right where Robert Kraft has focused some of his efforts. Um, every single movie I went to, I had the pleasure of seeing an ad that contained a swastika and no Jews on somebody's garage door, which, which was from Robert Kraft. It was like the point was this is bad. And then there was like this seemingly moving thing where like the neighbor sort of paints over it while the Jewish family is off at school or work or whatever. And I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. But like, I actually would prefer to not see a swastika. Oh, wow. Not see. I, I, I would prefer to not engage with a swastika and no Jews every single time I see a movie for six months. It's actually not my favorite thing. So. I I think that they somehow presume that this is the path towards getting people to like act when they see a swastika. Uh, like uh, somebody, and how if many we're going to spend are on it, garages. It, I don't know. I mean, this right. Is, like that's yeah. not the most common. Yeah. Like if we actually wanted to focus on the, it also gets to bigger things about like how they define anti-Semitism. I think in recent months, the focus of a lot of these projects and of like the Anti-Defamation League has been forms of anti-Zionist public protest, sometimes anti-Zionist public protest and public actions that can manifest as anti-Semitism. Sometimes, in my view, not. It depends. Um, and so we get into like really hazy territory of what it means to fight anti-Semitism. And when somebody like Robert Kraft, who is not, I don't think... A scholar of anti-Semitism um, is just sort of throwing money at this. What we get is like a, a garage door swastika graffiti story arc where somebody's neighbor paints over it. Like, okay. This reminds me a lot of a campaign I've seen here in Toronto um, that's about a, a addressing anti-Asian bigotry. And you see this all over the subway and things like this campaign, not anti-Asian bigotry, although maybe that as well, that says something like you listen to K-pop, but you don't call out, you know, people saying mean things about Koreans or like you you are learning Mandarin, but you don't call out anti-Chinese bigotry or something like it's something like that's kind of the pattern of the ads. And there's a bunch of them. And I think that the reason I bring this up in reference to the Super Bowl ad, it seems that the aim of something like this is about bystanders, is about sort of like how to be an ally, is about like speak up when you see, you know what I mean? Like that, I think that's maybe the point of things like this. Yeah, and that's the point because, that I think that is weird yeah. about this whole thing is that if you look at the Super Bowl ads in the past of religious ones, like you said, it was 
it's always some rich guy who wants you to love Jesus or a movement that basically but says, is this religious? Come is this, become, is this anything oh, so that's my Judaism? point. That's exactly yeah. my point is that yeah. it's either been like, you know, be, be a Christian, be a Scientologist, be uh, a Mormon, um, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, it, it is. We actually believe that if you hear this message for 30 seconds, you might have some part of your heart open up. And this is not that. This is basically saying, um, you know, you don't have to become Jewish. Just know that but don't hate the Jews. it's not even at all about And I don't think that's Jewish, a compelling message. Exactly. It's not. Is there anything religious about that? that's a good message. Is, There's these... nothing religious about it. And Isn't I don't it much think more like... Oh, I think it's religious. Message. I think it's I religious. Think... I just think it's it's a different... Re- I, I, I mean, this gets into what is religion questions. I mean, I, I think that... I think a lot of things We've are religious. We've spoken about this on the show about how yeah. the new religion of Judaism is fighting anti-Semitism. Right, it's well, the biggest tent and for some people, is for for some yeah. people, it's not fighting anti-Semitism. It's it's Israel advocacy. But like, I think that there are forms yes, of nationalism. Yeah. There are forms of there. Even by the way, I, I give talks all the time about how sports fandom is a religious practice. Like, I, I think that there are that there are people whose calendars and deepest joys and sadnesses are around a sports team in the same way that other people's are around Judaism or Christianity. Like, I but but in but like I. I do think that this points to us broadening our sense of what religion is because I actually think it shows us something about Christianity and Judaism, which is that when Christians do, when a random Christian philanthropist does an ad about Christianity, they talk about something that is the content of Christianity, which is to say Jesus. Now, do they do it super directly? Do they give you direct quotes of Jesus? Not really. If I remember it right, it's like a montage of just like mm-hmm. sort of different different events and things. Somebody and, feeling and sad like and then Jesus. reading the Bible and feeling good. Right. And saying and that's, you can feel but good that's, without... Yeah, to me, that's you know, more effective. Like, Judaism, like, I come away with nothing about what it is to be Jewish. I, I just know what it is to hate Jews. And so then we go and complain when, when, when we, we, you know, we write books like people love dead Jews or whatever. Like we, we complain when the, the biggest image of Jews is hatred of Jews as opposed to anything that we actually believe or think. We get mad when people don't know what our holidays are. We could do ads about like what the heck Rosh Hashanah is. We so, could do ads. Well, can I just about interrupt on this? As the, as the resident secular Jew here, um, not everybody who is impacted by anti-Semitism cares about Jewish holidays or is an observant Jew even a little bit. And I think that, you know, people like there's it's just it's a which matters for a couple of reasons. I mean, it is a bigger pool of people. So if you're trying to just get numbers for better or worse, and obviously for worse in many ways, you know, talking about anti-Semitism is a bigger tent. That is more people are impacted by anti-Semitism. However, another thing is that that does sometimes make people more Jewishly involved in one way or another because they think about an aspect of their identity they didn't before, whether it leads to religious observance or Zionism or something totally different depends. But yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it is that like not it's it's not that these are just interchangeable things. And, oh, well, we should focus on the positive. Well, the positive is going to be so many different things. And it's not. Um, and I think it's harder to figure out what's the positive that's unifying, you know? Yeah. No, to be clear, I think it would be a useful, I think it would be a useful service if one month before Rosh Hashanah, there were billboards in places that said, Rosh Hashanah is this day. Maybe if you're doing a thing meant for everyone, don't schedule it on that day. Like, to me, that would be a much more useful advertisement that I actually think would work. It I would be defaced in two it, seconds, but yes. Oh, I told, yes. yeah, it totally yes. would. And then there'd be articles about the defacement yes. that yes. mentioned that Rosh Hashanah is in a month that would <laughs> serve the goals. Like yeah. I, things being defaced doesn't make them not work. This brings us to the big pink elephant, pun intended, absolutely, um, in in the room, which is Jubilong, which started as an organization doing exactly that, right? Basically either promoting Judaism to Jews Right. And basically saying you don't have to be the best Jew in the world to be a good Jew and be a good Jew and it's okay. And telling the world about Judaism in a way that was non-threatening and fun and has made this like massive left turn to like really, really bizarre like campaigns on their billboards. Oh, I, (laughs) you said it, not me. Um, It's fine. Um, To like this bizarre campaign of like hardcore fighting anti-Semitism in the most draconian, strict, weird, dark way possible, um, while still using this bright pink that Archie Gottesman, who is the founder of Jubilong, loves so much. Um, 
what Arno, you what do you make of this and yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, i just want to like yeah yeah and i think you can actually jubilong draws a pretty straight line from some of the things that lex was talking about that that phoebe was talking about uh they started as pitching jewish religion they were advertisements sort of for jewish religion which kind of annoyed a bunch of people because they were sort of they were like a little proselytizing, which is something that Jews don't always love. And they also seem to be really flip about certain elements of Jewish religion. And, and they viewed that as radically open. Like, you know, they had billboards like, you know, if you eat bacon, you know, you can eat bacon on Shabbat. And people were like, sure, but also why are we running an ad, you know, campaign saying this? And then they moved to both obsessing over anti-Semitism and an understanding of anti-Semitism that fully incorporated, you know, running billboards that just said anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, in addition to one saying we're only X decades from Auschwitz, so no, we're not making too big of a deal out of anti-Semitism. And it, it's it's been wild. A lot of people have described it as, as cringy, but I also want to zoom a little bit further out from the FCAS Robert Kraft ads from the Jubilong ads. There was also Shine a Light, which is a campaign, I think, primarily in the United States, uh, a coalition of Jewish groups running PSAs over Hanukkah against anti-Semitism. There's this really fascinating trend in Jewish polling. So concern over, American Jewish concern over anti-Semitism. For many, many years, the vast majority of American Jews, the, the one thing that they, and I, I don't know if the same trends apply in Canada, but they might, uh, what does it mean to be Jewish? What's important uh, to your Jewish identity is remembering the Holocaust. So that's been true for a very long time. Obviously, that's tied into anti-Semitism. But since 2015, 2016, with the rise of Trump in the U.S., American Jews have expressed unprecedented levels of concern about anti-Semitism. However, when you ask them, have you personally experienced anti-Semitism, that number has been flat at around 25% for the last five years. So how do you account for this skyrocketing concern over anti-Semitism that people are apparently not actually experiencing? And I think there are a lot of answers to that, and they don't all have to do with marketing. Certainly, you can see anti-Semitism out in the world and be alarmed by it, even though you aren't directly touched by it. But I think there's a question to Lex's point. If every time American Jews go to the movie theater or turn on a football game, they see a Nazi defacing a Jewish family's home, how are they, what are they then supposed to, and it wasn't just that that's the image, it's then followed by a statistic that says something like, one in four American Jews have experienced, you know, anti-Semitic vandalism. It's some statistic that is technically true, but when you when you look at, and I went and I did this when I wrote about the ads, I said, okay, how many Jewish homes were defaced by anti-Semites? You know, we know that there are swastikas on bus stops, which could mean a whole variety of things. None of them good, but that's different than like a Nazi knowing where you live and spraying a swastika on your door and telling you to basically get out of the neighborhood, right? One is much more menacing. And it was something like, you know, the ADL counted like 3,000 instances of anti-Semitic vandalism, 12 of which were against like right. homes and personal property. Because the ADL is not interested in public. The ADL has very, the, the sense I get, they have a lot of different delineations within their organization of kinds of anti-Semitic things, of uh, even within vandalism. Like I had a, a, a experience here in Providence in in a short period of time. A, a grocery store near where I live um, was graffitied with Free Palestine. So it was graffitied with Free Palestine. That happened shortly after, like a couple weeks before in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is like, I don't know, 25 minutes from here. So close enough to be in our same like local news container, um, had a whole slew of Jewish graves defaced with like swastikas and death to Jews, that kind of like that kind of thing. Um from my perspective, those are two wildly different things in terms of what they like. I'm not happy about either of them, to be clear. But the fact that there are Jewish graves being defaced, number one. Um, so people went to a Jewish cemetery. They went to a space that is specifically delineated as Jewish to do harm. That was their goal. Um, and then the content of what they put was actually about our deaths and and invoking sim symbol symbolisms of the most well-known people who have perpetuated our deaths that is a different thing from somebody going to a local grocery store that is not affiliated with any particular anything it's like a it's like a i don't know a, a lot of vegetarians go there they've got like good vegan substitutes um and putting free palestine which 
maybe some people like as a message, maybe some people don't like as a message, but it is not a direct it is not a direct threat in the way that a swastika is. And so what happens then is we put those in a box called vandalism. We call it anti-Semitic vandalism. If I can amplify what you're saying even more, is that we've looked at this in the show in the past. B'nai B'rith doesn't make a distinction between the fact that other we are the largest victims of hate crime per capita across every other minority in Canada, whatever it is. But then you look at it and you, and, and you talk to experts and they're like, yeah, that's because the Jews report everything. And so many other minorities don't have the same relationship with the police and they don't report anything. I mean, not anything. I mean, I'm being you know, mm-hmm. right. And and so our numbers yeah. are often inflated because we're willing to see the smallest version of a swastika somewhere that some kid, you know, use their finger to like do on the snow of a car and say, oh, see anti-Semitism. And we're going to report it. Gonna be, I think you might be infinite. creating a portrait of the hypersensitive Jew that goes above and beyond anything I personally am going to want to endorse. I mean, I but agree that's that what there are differences does. We've spoken think, to experts think, on the no, show no, about I think, this. I would... I, yeah, but Avi, I think what I would maybe, I w- might reframe this a little bit and say that there are groups with historical reasons for not wanting to go to the police about stuff. And that sure, that that's, my, that's more exactly my point. That, yeah, no, but, I'm saying, but, I, but these are two kind of separate pieces. Like, No, I, I, like, basically what I'm getting at is a lot of us on the Jewish left spend a lot of time publicly talking about how problematic it is that we conflate. So first that we conflate different kinds of anti-Semitism into one generalized box. Like, and there I'm talking about things that are actually anti-Semitic. Like we, we treat like, I mean, like I don't, I don't actually know the ADL's categorizations in and out, but like, you know, an attack on a synagogue, an actual bombing is like one anti-Semitic incident in the, in the, in the, pack of anti-Semitic incidents that we put in our studies or whatever, so is the, the swastika on the car window that you're talking about. So is um, now, like, Zionism is racism on a on a billboard, on a sign or whatever that somebody mm-hmm. graffiti like those are not the same thing. And when all of our metri- when all of our ways of fighting anti-Semitism are premised on telling the world how many of them there are, which is what they are. Like, that's what Robert Kraft does in the commercials. That's what the ADL does. Like, they want to show the world that there is a lot of anti-Semitism. They're not interested in distinguishing between there's a lot of anti-Semitism of this kind, but not a lot of this kind. Because their goal is to is to make the world fearful of perpetuating anti-Semitism, which is a good goal. But when you do that, you both um, minimize what anti-Semitism is because you're counting all of it the same. And you actually, like you do a worse job of fighting the really terrible stuff because you you create like thousands of anti-Semitic incidents that are all in your pot equally and you don't actually focus. Like we, a lot of us come from a place of like, it's weird that we have stopped talking about Pittsburgh that happened five and a half years ago. Like it's weird. That was a, that was a mass, that, a, a, a dozen, uh, 13, like, like a, a bunch of people died at a Shabbat service because a guy went in and killed them. And we're out here talking about college campuses and and whether signs are ripped down. Like well, those are is that like, not recency that, bias that, to some extent? I, but I mean, sure. But in the grand scheme, six years is pretty recent. Like, sure. I I think that these organizations should be strong enough and smart enough that they that they at least think about the past bunch of years. Like there there have been attacks on synagogues even in recent times, but. We're like having big articles about how there's attacks on synagogues and also people posting stuff in internet forums. So can, like, I, that's different. I, I think there's also a sense, there's a depoliticization of obviously in the actual lobbying that groups like the ADL uh, and B'nai B'rith do, there is a lot of politics. But Robert Kraft, who is a, you know, political being who's donated a lot of money to politicians, uh, these ads are like just people who hate Jews, right? I think one had a teenager who was posting like, you know, kill the Jews online, the garage door, which is totally divorced from anti-Semitism as it's used in a political context, either to, uh, you know, advance a right-wing agenda, you know, to the extent that anti-Semitism makes its way into anti-Zionist rhetoric. It's, It's not about that. It's just the sense that People just hate us because we're Jewish and you're running these ad, you're running this national ad campaign. And the irony is Americans, and you know, I don't know the numbers exactly for Canadians. So I would hope they're similar, really like Jews. When you ask people which religious groups they have the best feelings about, Jews are always at the top of the list. So most Americans are going to see these ads and either be like, oh, wow, this is terrible. Or be like, 
well, yeah, of course, if my neighbor's house got defaced with a swastika, I would, you know, go over and, and comfort them. And then Jews are seeing it and freaking out. And it's like, what what is this serving? And I think when you combine that with the fact that you have these hyper-elevated levels of Jewish fear, and, and these ads don't really have a message for Jews. What are Jews supposed to do about this? They're just supposed to sit at home worrying that one day someone's going to come? Um, yeah, so that's the other thing. But, the, but just to sort of pivot back to, like, what's for Jews, that seems like another piece, and that I wanted to kind of maybe bring the conversation, since we did talk about Jubalong a little bit, back to this idea of, like, coolness and this does this isn't just jews trying to do this although it may um you know because you i always think of like the the pastor who's got the guitar and is kind of cool right and there's something very cringe about any time a religion tries to seem cool and yet it seems like all religions, maybe, but maybe particularly Jews. I don't know. We, we can. Discuss. I always used to um, say that when I was involved with NCSY, which is the one of the major Orthodox youth groups, was that you always had the like the advisor or the senior like educator, whatever, that's always trying to be cool with the kids and like be that cool guy. And I was like, I know that guy, and he used to not be cool in high school, and this is his desperate way to like try to be cool. And I think that that's true of a lot of religious figures. Is that like, so, oh, we're not so cool, yeah, so that's, but let's pretend so that I, we are yes. because. Yes. We want that so validation. the reason I bring this up now is when I see the Jubalong billboards, that's kind of the vibe I get is like, this is something that's trying to be cool and it isn't hitting that mark. But then the question is, I guess what I wonder in a sort of even bigger picture way is like, is cool even a relevant thing? Do most people, are most people cool? Do most people even want cool, even young people? And it just seems like it's maybe um, going down and and not the most fruitful path. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's changing. I mean, I I think it's fascinating. Like, we've talked about this organizationally because we advertise some of our things as being really nerdy. Like, we actually use that language. Like, are you nerdy, nerdy is nerd? cool, let's be honest. Um, and, and that, ha- like, there's a way in which it's like, and, and there's been generational conversations on our own team where, like, people who are Gen X, often are like why would you why would you do that there's a lot of people who don't think of themselves as nerds like what like why like and we're like actually like that's that's a better way to go maybe uh and again we don't use it always but like i i think you're right to name the like youth pastor meme i mean even on tiktok there's all sorts of like there's there's people who have played with this idea of like i'm the cool youth pastor like jesus did this like all of this like you know backwards hat like mm-hmm. try to talk to and we could even talk about like in adam sandler's bat mitzvah movie the the rabbi in that but i actually think she's interesting because i think she kind of is meant to be taken by viewers as pulling it off um like the kids actually really like her because she's sincere i think it comes down to sincerity and what you feel with jubilong is I don't. I don't have a respectful way to say this. It's it's kitsch. It's it's nonsense. It's 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 not. Um, what's funny is they early in early on they had some pretty good resources and they still exist. Like our family's Passover Seder actually used some of their like cute little like tellings of the story or whatever. Um, but what they do is they try to distill stuff into little sound bites. And what they do is they create these ads where they've been fat phobic. They've distilled Jewishness to the assumption of not having blonde hair. They've like posted ads where like the, the meme is that somebody is blonde. And so they're probably not Jewish. Um, they've, they've, you know, done all sorts of disrespectful things along all sorts of different axes because they think that it's cool, but they just have a fully they have a terrible sense of what people read in that way. And the the biggest element, as far as I can tell, of who their audience is that, that receives it and likes it is um, coastal is coastal folks in their like 50s and 60s and usually women like that's that that's who I, that's who seems to to most gravitate towards it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to bang on the, the source of funding drum too much, but I think that's where a lot of this comes from, because you also had. Uh, Zioness, which is sort of a, I, I kind of think of them in a similar sense as Jubilong, and they're this progressive Zionist, but the idea is like, we're going to show up to the abortion rally with signs about how Zionists support abortion rights. And their iconography is all based around that like hope poster of Barack Obama from 2008. It's like all these silhouetted images of Jewish women or other women in, in that iconography. And you can see that there was a moment in time 
when they got a grant to set up and that's what was cool and trending. And so that's what they base their iconography around. But because they don't necessarily answer to it, I don't want to pick on Zionists, but I think certainly this is true with Jubilong and, and many other Jewish groups, because they aren't beholden to a grassroots that is paying dues to them or something like that. It, you can't keep up with trends. Like the way that you're cool is I think by being of and part of the community that you want to serve. And maybe you're the coolest, like you're the vanguard of that community. But to Lex's point, you know, folks in their 50s and 60s who are paying for these billboards that are supposed to speak to somehow people in their 20s and 30s, that's never going to work. And that's the model by which all of these programs are supported, or at least the vast majority. So I think that's a, a huge source of, of where the disconnect comes from. To, to the sincerity piece, right? The thing where they lost the plot, I find, and that really like, I was like, wait a second, who are you people? Was when I started seeing them throw other Jews under the bus. Right. When, you know, when when I got a, when I got an email that said, fellow Jews, what was it? Clearly, we did not tikkun olam our way into the hearts of those we thought were our allies. New plan. Put on your own oxygen mask first. Right. And like sort of saying, if you're a lefty Jew, screw you. Right. It's time to stop oh. being a lefty Jew. I mean, I agree and, that uh, that's a bad ad. I agree that that's a bad message, but I don't re- interpret it that way at all. I see this more as like re- I, I see it as it's attempting outreach to lefty Jews. It's not. Sort of, yeah, but basically saying that your entire raison that yeah, this it's it, they're basically saying that your entire way of being Jewish is flawed and wrong because you are caring about other people. It's time to only care about the Jews, and and the problem with that is that you're only being sincere about being anti-Semitic and like just like fighting anti-Semitism and the damage that I think is being done by this entire going from craft. This whole discussion is that there's nothing Jewish about simply fighting anti-Semitism. And this is not about religion versus secular, because I do think that as much as I, my tendencies are like promote Judaism the way that Lex was talking about it, talk about Jewish holidays, talk about the great stuff that we've done, we have the ability and the responsibility to be doing that about culture also, right? You don't have this like, you know, there's just as much positive, great Jewish culture that we can be talking about that will be of interest to secular Jews that doesn't have to be just fight anti-Semitism. And I think that it's damaging, and I think that they're not stopping Mm -hmm. to think about how damaging it is to Judaism, right, when all you talk about about Judaism is about how much anti-Semitism there is in the world. So Avi, Avi, I totally agree with you about this, but my question is how logistically to do this when culture is so... I don't know, but the answer isn't billboards. I feel like the problem like, I feel like the problem that comes up logistically is that every Jew opposes anti-Semitism, where any whereas anything you do that's culture, too high culture, too low culture, too Ashkenazi, too so not Ashkenazi. You know answer, what I mean? Like they're all you know what I mean? My like, answer is that we haven't yeah. been good enough ambassadors at the micro level. There's a there's mm-hmm. fifteen million ways to be Jewish, right? And we haven't made that clear to the fifteen million Jews that that there is mm-hmm. some avenue into positive Judaism for you at the micro level, whether it's like you know, we just came off of this I, I I'm gonna be I'm gonna be rabbinic and we have this uh, piece at the beginning of last week's tour portion when Jethro comes and visits Moses and he basically tells him, stop being the answer for everybody. Stop being the adjudicator for every possible thing. And he's basically saying, you need people who are in charge of thousands and people in charge of hundreds and people in charge of tens. Like, basically, we need to create the Jews, or not to create, we need to remind the Jews that care about these things, that you have, you can go out and you can find 10 other people that you know that don't think about Judaism and find a way to talk to them about Judaism in a way that works for them because it works for you, right? And that's secular and that's religious. Be an, be, be an ambassador. For, and everybody is empowered to do that, and we don't. What we have is we have these mega rabbis um, and we have these mega Jewish organizations that basically say, this is what Judaism is. This is all you need. This is what I'm going to throw out at you. We don't have mega rabbis. That's actually a problem. But um, we can bracket that discussion. Yeah. But anyway. Maybe you're the ahead. mega rabbi. I really like that we're sitting... like. I'm a cultural Jew. I say that uh, very regularly and people are always confused because I'm a rabbi also. Um, like I want to be really clear. I, I identify as a cultural Jew. I, I generate my meaning and purpose and Judaism in the world 
from culture primarily. And I also, I feel like religion and culture are treated as a duality when they're not actually. Um, and so a lot of my religious impulses, I actually group under culture, but like I, I teach, I teach entire classes where the entire purpose is to understand Jewish pop culture and Jewish food across all sorts of differences of what Jewish food is and, and, and sports. And like, I, I teach entire things about how we need to understand those things as deep, parts of how we scope our human meaning. And so we need to understand that culture is of deep import. Um, so Phoebe, I really appreciate what you're saying that it's, it's harder to do. It's harder to like take Jewish culture a, because it's, it's more tied to certain time periods and like what, like we, we don't have like a calendar of holidays that are on this day in the year, we don't have like parshas where every week of the year we watch a different episode of a Jewish exactly, TV exactly. show. And just, I, just, I would I, like I just to. want to be clear about that. <laughs> I'm not saying that we should only focus on. <laughs> I am absolutely well, not just for Seinfeld. I, I, I'm calling I'm for saying, a syllabus yeah. of of Jewish life well, that is not just the. Torah I just wanted to call out that I'm not saying that Seinfeld we should talk about anti-Semitism instead of Seinfeld. Although Seinfeld talks about anti-Semitism, Uncle Leo. Seinfeld's but, really um, interesting on that. Yes, it is. Um, but. And we could totally go down that path too. But what I was going to say is, I'm not saying that that's what we should do. I'm saying that I think that I'm just talking about the logistical challenges. Um, but, yeah, you know, but like the, you know, that's what I mean. Like yeah. we, part of the my solutions to a lot of this are that we have to think more critically and more expansively about how we how we define Judaism generally. And, and that's why I devote my life to like revisioning and reinventing both Jewish institutions and sort of the content of Judaism itself. Um, so for me, that's like until we do that. The marketing effort is like marketing is what you do to some to a product that you've decided on. And so it's like the R&D effort is what I am, am more invested in. But going to I think what Avi might have been getting at is part of the issue we have is that what Jubilong and Robert Kraft and everybody else are trying to do is reach the most people. We live in a world that is very segmented and that uses very different kinds of media. And so it is no longer the case that getting an ad on CBS on a Thursday is like automatically going to be the thing that most achieves what you want to achieve. It may be that getting an ad on a YouTube channel that a specific set of people are engaged in is yeah that's going to be a smaller number but it may you may actually target it more effectively. We have a huge issue um, with marketing to Jews, which is that it is actually against the rules that you are not able on Facebook and other platforms to any longer advertise certain things to like, oh, Jews who have liked this organization or Jews who identify like you can't segment by Jewishness anymore. You used to be able to because they're worried about that being used for anti-Semitic purposes. Um I don't know if that was the right move. Like if we're asking the question of like, who are the ads for and like, how might we give Jews themselves and not just, you know, Christians and others who are going to work against anti-Semitism, how might we target things to them? We have to be able to target, like we have to be able to do that. And as of now, the only ways to do that are to offline, put up a billboard in a, in an area of town that has a bunch of Jews or something like that. You can't do it digitally because these platforms and, and governmental regulations have made it not permissible. So that was a long, like a long rant, but I, I do think that part of the answer is having Jubilong and Robert Kraft try to create ads for just everyone, as opposed to more targeted ads is, is a huge part of the problem. Great. And, and I'll, I'll make two points. One is, you know, Lex, you talked about having a more critical and expansive sense of Judaism and, and what it means today and what we're even trying to market and, you know, and Phoebe, you mentioned that anti-Semitism is something we can all agree on. But I think I would encourage, you know, listeners to take a more expansive and critical view of anti-Semitism, of fighting anti-Semitism, of what that means. Because a lot of the sort of memeified versions of let's fight anti-Semitism that we're seeing in these ads mask the fact that there is really a raging sort of debate in the Jewish community among Jews over not just anti-Semitism related to Israel, but over questions of you know, does Jewish safety come through solidarity with other minority groups or does it, you know, are other minority groups a potential threat to Jews and we should sort of put up walls and, you know, improve our security? Where is the balance between those two things? There are a bunch of things that we need to really think about. And when you just get the message that you should be afraid to be Jewish and just defer to whoever is, you know, raising their hand uh, on your behalf, I think that that poses a risk. Um, and then on, you know, maybe a more optimistic note, 
another thing that we see come through in the polling really strongly. You know, we don't know whether these billboards or television ads work, although there's a lot of reason to think that they do not. What we do know is that people who personally know someone who is Jewish are far more likely to take anti-Semitism seriously and are far less likely to hold anti-Semitic views. It's not a perfect salve for these things, uh, but I think about, you know, when we're putting $25 million toward an ad campaign, $7 million for a 30-second spot, how much of that money could go toward uh, building, you know, Jewish community to getting Jews out into the community, to doing interfaith events, to doing the sort of things that we know, those face-to-face interactions, that having an audience of 10 people where you get to ask someone questions about what it means to be Jewish, and then when you see something on social media about Jews, you're like, oh, well, I know that guy, and he doesn't seem like he controls the banks. You know, we we know that some of these things work. Um, we don't know about the TV ads. We don't know about the billboards. So that would be my sort of... Uh, closing closing thought on all of this. Well, let's leave it at that for today. Uh, as always, we would love to hear what you guys thought. Please do email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca with your comments. Coming right up, our Nachas Bregas of the Week. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Okay, so um, our Nachas is officially now Nachas Orbruegis. Uh Lex, do you have a Nachas Orbruegis for us this week? <laughs> uh, first off, I love this segment more more Nachas and Bruegis. Um, I- I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a Shkoyach, which adds a layer of of sanctity to it, and is also an an homage to the the podcast Traif that I was a loyal listener to for a long and time. And will you they tell us these, what that means? Um, Yes, shkoyach is sort of a a sacred way in a Jewish context of saying like you've done holy work. I see. Um, my shkoyach slash nachis, I'm gonna give to the tail end of the book of Exodus that we're in right now. Talk about a section of the Torah that does not get much marketing. Um, the early part is really sexy, and where we leave Egypt and we get a whole holiday about it in a few months. Um, but we're entering into this portion that is all about like building the tabernacle. I'm a big fan of this part of the Torah and its love for aesthetics. And it actually sort of endorses the notion that it does matter what we choose visually and how we brand our work. I don't think we talk about branding the Mishkan, the tabernacle very much, but that's kind of what's operating here. And so I'm going to give my, my Nachis slash Shkoyach to Betzalel and Aholiav, the two folks that that drive that effort in the Torah. Weird See, one, maybe. All That's the way back there in our first year of being Jews, we were already into commercial real estate and development. You know, this is like clearly a deep Jewish business. <laughs> Arno, do you have a Nachas? Do you have a Shkoyach? Do you have a Bruegas? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I should give some Nachas to uh, to my colleague Mira, who I think I mentioned, Mira Fox, who's who's done... Uh, sort of the the Lord's work in uh, documenting a lot of these various marketing efforts. You know, the He Gets Us, uh, Jubilong. Also, I don't know if you've gotten this in Canada, but I guess the Israeli government has been running these sort of uncanny visit Gaza ads that are like tourism ads for Gaza. But then, oh no, Hamas ruined it uh, on Hulu here. And and she's she's done a lot of the work of asking no. oh what what is going on with crazy. whatever the latest strange uh, marketing gambit involving Jews uh, or, or religion is. So um, definitely recommend folks folks uh, read her work and, and lots of uh, her analysis has informed, I think, my views on all of this. Arno, I ran into Mira Fox at a bar in Providence like a week ago. It's the Rhode Island so connection. This is, this is faded. I love your. I love it. Shouts awesome. to Mira. Phoebe, what do you got to stress this week? Well, I'm going to be on the vanguard, okay? So I'm re-watching or not even rewatching, I should say, really watching for the first time an old television show called The Golden Girls, a well-known show. Um, it's on Disney+, Plus and which we now have because of kids. But um, I'm like, well, I'm going to watch The Golden Girls at night after they go to bed. And 
you know, I was sort of doing this like funny deep dive into it, whatever. But then I learned um, from one of our colleagues, uh, Mark at the CJN, uh, he sent me, well, I saw on the Wikipedia page that B. Arthur, um, one of the girls uh, who plays um, Dorothy, had done ads for Shoppers Drug Mart, the Canadian version of like Rite Aid or something like that, or Walgreens, like a drugstore chain, at, while she was on the Golden Girls, but that they had to only be shown in Canada. Like she didn't want people to know. It would hurt her brand to show that she was advertising this, you know, drugstore brand. And then Mark sent me a YouTube that we'll have to put um, on the show page that's just like, all of these ads and they are incredible. Okay. Like one of them, she's trying to seduce the pharmacist. It's just, it's real. They're really funny. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my sort of Jews marketing little, um, Nachas. Avi, you're up. Uh, total Nachas this week. I happen to be, uh, finding myself today and uh, over the weekend in California, I'm doing a wedding, um, and it should be a fun time, but I realized that the town that I'm in, which is Camarillo, uh, California is right next to Oxnard, um, which is where the Baron Herzog winery is. And I was like, you know, if you're not drinking Manischewitz, this, the, the bottle on your ta- your Shabbat table is probably from the Baron Herzog winery. I was like, well, I have to go visit. Um, they have a restaurant there. I had a remarkably great wine tasting and meal there. Um, I have to say, in hindsight, um, I probably would have eaten at the bar because the, the bar food seemed just as interesting and a fraction of the price. And my meal with the wine pairings and everything was like eye-wateringly expensive. Um, and so, um, but I highly, highly recommend it. It was an amazing time, an amazing evening. If you ever find yourself in, in California, in Southern California, um, go find the kosher wineries and eat at their places, specifically like Herzog, but there are others that I've heard of that are doing good work. Um, so check that out. Um, great show, everybody, all across. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Super fun. Thank you for listening to Boshachai for the week ending February 10th, Shabbat Parashat Mishpatim. The show is produced and edited by Zach Hoffman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project for the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Boshachai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca.